y'all. Welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast where I, Nicole Barbosa, chat with some of the coolest people in publishing about the wonderful world of books. In each episode, my guest and I will chat all about their book, Real or Imaginary, and then place it on a shelf alongside other authors and books that inspire them. Great literature frozen in time. It's definitely one for all the bibliophiles. What do you've got mail, Sleepless in Seattle, and When Harry Met Sally all have in common? The incredible Nora Ephron. In today's episode, I chat with entertainment journalist, author, and fellow Nora Ephron fan, Erin Carlson. Her book, I'll Have What She's Having, is a beautiful tribute to Nora and the three iconic romantic comedy films that she created. It was also one of my favorite books of 2017. Whether you've seen these films once or a hundred times like me, you'll love getting lost in the world of Nora Ephron, learning why she is still an inspiring woman for today's generations, and why these iconic films will continue to be favorites for many years to come. Before we actually start all the questions that I have, and I do have many questions for you about this fantastic book that you've written, I have to ask and be honest... Have you ever done the When Harry Met Sally scene in Cat's Deli? No, but I What? I know. And I lived in the East Village for like 10 years, basically around the corner from Cat's Deli, but I never did it. I totally chickened out. And there's a little spot in Cat's Deli, if you go, where you can sit down at the spot where Meg Ryan sat. And I never did it. For what it's worth, I've never actually done it as well. But when I did go to Cat's Deli last time I was in New York, I did speak to one of the guys that works there. And he said that quite a few people do it. And some people are great. And some people are just kind of, well, I guess they're okay. You know, it's, it's not the full effect. But um, I thought that that was a great question to start with. Because obviously, after that famous scene you have one of the best lines ever uttered in a film which is I'll have what she's having and for diehard Nora Ephron and when Harry Met Sally fans they will know that the woman who uttered those immortal words is indeed the director's mother Estelle Reiner which is Rob Reiner's mother and you definitely touch on that in your book which we'll get into a bit later but what I actually wanted to know before we get into what your book's about How did you pick that title? Why did you go with I'll Have What She's Having? The title was originally made for each other. Sort of a a nod to MFEO. Like Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan are so MFEO. And uh, Nora's sister Delia used to have acronyms for everything. The title of my book was supposed to be MFEO. But my agent read my proposal and he was like, I have a better title for this. I'll have what she's having. And there had been other books with the same title. Uh, There was a celebrity diet book called I'll Have What She's Having. So I had reservations. I was like, are too many things named this iconic line? But there was no better title for this book than that because it encapsulates so much. It's that famous line, but it's also... To me, I'll have what she's having was the best title for this book because, of course, it's Estelle Reiner's famous line, but it also encapsulates Nora Ephron to a T. This amazing, big, vibrant life, this wonderful husband and this wonderful career, and she managed to have it all and also be a wonderful gourmet cook. And it is funny because in some ways, I wonder if that line will always 
be associated with Nora. It's in a film very much created as a brainchild of Nora, but it really is just, it may have been quoted by someone else, but it is, it's Nora's line. It's, isn't that funny? The true story is that Billy Crystal wrote it. You know, they needed something to end the scene that was funny. They needed a funny one-liner to button the scene. And Billy was like, that would be funny. And then um, he was like, we should get an older woman to do it. Who should play the older woman? Estelle Reiner. And Rob didn't really think about that. He was like, sure, we'll bring my mother on. And he didn't really think about how embarrassing it would be to have his mother say that line in the scene about a public orgasm (laughs) that Rob himself was directing. So he had a little bit of a meltdown when they were shooting it. And he's like, "Ah, I can't believe my mother's watching this. But now he said, ironically, if you look up, like AFI had a top 10 one-liners in film history. And that's right up there with, here's looking at you, kid. He just thinks that's hilarious that his mother is like now an iconic part of film history. But what's interesting too is that people think that Nora wrote that line. She, even though um, Billy wrote that and Rob directed the movie, Nora is so associated with When Harry Met Sally that people think she directed it. (laughs) People think that she wrote that line. She kind of stole it from her friend, Rob Reiner. It's just so funny. And you touch on it in your book. I mean, was Estelle nervous to say that, do you think, after what had just been filmed? No. No, she wasn't nervous because Estelle was married to Carl Reiner, famous writer. And uh, she has seen it all. She's heard it all. Rob called her and was like, would you come and do this line? She's like, I just, yeah, sure. I want to come out to New York, hang out with my son, have a hot dog. She was more excited to watch her son direct this movie than she was embarrassed to say that line. And she was an actress as well and a comedian. And in her later years, she was a cabaret singer. I know, she that's a- so fascinating. Yeah. I read that in your book and I just had to reread that passage because... Again, like you could technically say that she had it all. Because Rob had a strong mother, he had no qualms about inviting Nora onto the set every day and making her an associate producer. So that almost never happens with with screenwriters. You write the screenplay, the director takes it, might give it to another screenwriter to rewrite it. He invited Nora to the set and she became a valuable resource for Billy and Meg they'd be like what do you think about this what do you think about that and then Rob would solicit her opinion on everything and because she's Nora Ephron she did have an opinion on absolutely everything so she was an important element of the making of that film not only in writing it but uh you know making it look as good as it did and I think the film is all the much better for it because I I I can't even I I won't even imagine that film without Nora and she was given the opportunity to make it something special so we've kind of gone into the guts of the book but for anyone who hasn't read it what exactly this book is about so I'll have what she's having is my tribute to the making of three iconic romantic comedies which were written and directed by Nora Ephron one of the most groundbreaking female filmmakers ever. It's about the making of When Harry Met Sally, Sleepless in Seattle, and You've Got Mail. And I love these movies so much that 
I was surprised there wasn't a book about the making of them. Because you look on the, um, the arts and entertainment bookshelf at Barnes and Noble and you see like biographies of James Cameron and Scorsese and all these incredible male filmmakers, but nothing about one of the most successful female filmmakers of all time, Nora Ephron. So this was my opportunity to give her the same amount of love that so many other writers give these male filmmakers. And at the same time, selfishly, it was my opportunity to sort of live inside the worlds of Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail and interview all these people, recreate the twinkle lights and coziness of the Upper West Side, which was a setting of two of Nora's romantic comedies, uh, When Harry Met Sally, and then You've Got Mail. But I just wanted to give something to the fans. And I'm a fan too. Jen Armstrong and I, Jen Armstrong wrote Seinfeldia and an amazing book about Sex and City that came out last year. Four years ago, we did, uh, we banded together for a romantic comedy tour. We did a tour of the Upper West Side and all of Nora's stomping grounds. You know, the locations like Cafe Lalo and uh, Cafe Luxembourg, all these famous locations from her movies. And it was really popular. By the time we did our second tour, because we did it like every Sunday, there were people flying out from Arizona, you know, go on the tour. And I was like, there's a book in here. You and Jennifer got it spot on when you uh, decided yeah. that there was an audience. And it's really interesting that you say that you were surprised that there wasn't already a book about Nora like this out there. And I was surprised as well. But at the same time, I'm so glad that you were the one to write it because I think it came out at a time when after everything that's happened in the last two years, we needed a book like this. Because as you said, there is something so comforting and so magical about these three films. And it's not even difficult to explain. I mean, you could literally write a book about it, which you did. And <laughs> it's good that it came out when it did. So even though I know you were surprised that it hadn't already come out, I'm glad that it didn't because you were the one to write it. And that's really great. So, and your passion and your enthusiasm and your superior knowledge of this woman and of these films is so true when you read through these pages. So, you know, that's really great. But kind of on surprises as you were as you were doing that, what were you most surprised to discover when you were writing this book? When I started this book, first of all, I hadn't seen Jacob Bernstein's documentary about his mother, Everything is Copy. What I didn't know when I started interviewing and doing the research for this book, I was surprised that she wasn't the warm and fuzzy woman I thought she would be. She was a complicated person. Um, you know, on one hand, she was warm and kind, a great hostess, an excellent tipper, a true romantic. But at, on the other hand, she was also a cynic. Um, she could be cruel with a one-liner. She was tough on a film set. Somebody wasn't in her food group, like the production designer from Sleepless in Seattle. She could be brutal. And there were some people I interviewed that were not fans of her. And How is that possible? <laughs> right? And I was like, wow, this woman is more interesting than I thought. There was a lot I did not include in the book. So writing it as a fan, writing it for fans, I was like, how much of the real Nora should I show? And I decided it would be a disservice to Nora 
and the fans if I didn't show her warts and all. Because why does a woman always have to be nice? Why does a woman, a successful woman, have to be warm and fuzzy? And so I wanted to show her and depict her as somebody might depict James Cameron, who is tough and a pain in the ass. Nora was. I wanted people's reaction to her or how men perceived her on the set, like the production designer from Sleepless in Seattle. I thought that was important to include because his reaction to her is similar to the way a lot of men would react to her and how people perceived a woman in power, how people perceived a powerful woman on a film set. That was important to me the perception of her. Absolutely, and I think that's really fascinating. And, you know, before I read your book, before I watched everything as copy and really got to the roots of why Nora Ephron was the way that she was, you know, she is beloved around the world. And I meet people here and, you know, I've had conversations with friends back home in the States and we equally agree that she is just fabulous. She's just fantastic. All the characteristics that you talked through just now. So she was tough. She was fierce. She didn't necessarily get on with everybody and that was okay because at the end of the day, she was there to do a job and she was going to do it great because that was her. I think what's interesting as well is if you put her and her film side by side and these three films people know and love and like I said, they are comforting, they are magical and people go to them when they want to feel that way. But if you actually peel back the layers of the films, similar to if you peel back the layers of Nora Ephron, you discover that not only are they not necessarily how they seem on the surface, but actually they're a lot more fascinating because they have those different levels to them. Those things that you touch on and the things that I've just kind of stepped through now are also the reasons that we go back to these films and we talk about Nora time in and time again. I mean, why do you think she she does just have that lasting impact? Exactly. Everything you said is on the nose. Her movies are comforting. People go back to them again and again. I had asked her sister and collaborator once, why do you think these films are so popular? Delia said it's because they're comforting. But she was also sort of downplaying their impact. They are not just museum pieces. They're not just flash in the pan they are of their time, but also timeless. So for instance, with You've Got Mail, instead of just doing a cute rom-com, Nora and Delia decided to give it some substance and depth and ground it in what was actually going on in the Upper West Side, which was gentrification. The neighborhood was changing. The yuppies were moving in. Starbucks was moving in. Fox Books, which was actually a stand-in for... Barnes and Noble, there were two Barnes and Nobles that moved in in the 80s and squeezed out the independent booksellers. So there was a real fear in the neighborhood that all of the character and all of the characters and the color and the small townness of the neighborhood would completely disappear and be replaced by big box stores like Barnes and Noble. So Instead of just a love story, Nora and Delia grounded it in real stakes. So, okay, how do we update the shop around the corner? One of the most perfect romantic comedies ever, a perfect film. And Delia was like, oh, okay, bookstores. He's the Barnes and Noble and she's the indie bookseller. 
and they fall in love, you know, in an AOL chat room. And when he finds out who she is, he's devastated to learn that he's putting her out of business. And that gives what could have been a fluffy romantic comedy real weight. Because when she closes the store, this is her mother's legacy, Cecilia's legacy. There's That's the saddest part in the movie, when she closes the shop around the corner and opens a new chapter of her life. There is so much going on in this film. And um, that is a credit to Nora and her intelligence and how she was just combing these things in so effortlessly that you don't even realize that this movie has so much impact. Because it's Tom and Meg and they're so cute. I'm not comparing it to Pride and Prejudice, but it to me, it's as timeless. And to me, Kathleen sort of, pixie version of Elizabeth Bennet. And of course you have the Pride and Prejudice references in that film. The amount of times that I have seen You've Got Mail, the gentrification angle, kind of the first time I've really thought about it is is us discussing it now. And that's what I mean by the layers. Because on the surface, You've Got Mail is a really cute, fun 90s rom-com. But as you peel it back, and Sometimes it is good to do that. Sometimes you don't want to mess with a film and you just want to love it for how it is. But then sometimes you peel it back and you're like, wow. And one word that I was thinking of when you were going through all of that was grit. And I was thinking that film had grit, Nora had grit. And and when you touch on it in the book, one of my favorite scenes, and it's such a simple scene, but one of my favorite scenes in that movie is when Tom Hanks, Joe Fox, comes to (laughs) see... Kathleen Kelly at her apartment while she's ill and she sat on the sofa and she's she has a cold and he's come to bring her daisies and you know aren't daisy the the friendliest flower and she sits across from him and he said it wasn't personal and she says what does what does that even mean she says what what that actually means is it wasn't personal to you and what's wrong with being personal if anything we should start off by being personal and I don't know why but that always makes me tear up a little bit because The fact that she's closed the store and she's really struggling with the closure literally of the store and the closure of saying goodbye to her mother's legacy. It's such an emotional moment because, again, you have Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan and they're great and we love them. But that scene is so raw and so interesting. And I think that is also, again the irony and how we're describing these films, how much it aligns with how we describe Nora herself. Oh, that line, uh, Nora would be like, how am I not supposed to take things personally? Should I take it as a group? You've Got Mail had more of Nora than Sleepless in Seattle. Sleepless in Seattle, I think, was her attempt to make romantic comedy that was about love in the movies, not just love, but an homage to those big, flashy romances of yore, like an affair to remember. But in Jacob Bernstein, her son would say of her rom-coms, yeah, they didn't have as much of my mom in there. I disagree. I think that You've Got Mail was all Nora and Delia. I mean, Frank Navasky, Kathleen's partner, was based on Ron Rosenbaum, this over-the-top, super liberal writer who was fighting, like, helping the New York Times take on Barnes & Noble. And there were so many different references to the literary world that only Nora and Delia could think of. Yeah, he was so in love with his typewriter. (laughs) I love that. 
You know what? I actually like the more you've got males on all the time. Yep. All the time. And even though I've seen it 200 times, every time it's on, we have to watch it. Of course. And the character that keeps growing on me is Frank Navasky, is <laughs> Fred Kinnear in this movie because, you know, this is before their amicable breakup. They're in the movie theater and Kathleen admits to him that she didn't vote. I forgot about that. <laughs> got a manicure. And two years ago, I would have been like, oh, yeah, I mean, why would she vote for the mayoral election? Who cares? <laughs> not really, but you know what I mean? Um, oh, it's not such a big deal. She had to get a manicure. Now I'm putting myself in Frank's shoes. Like, no, that's not cool. You must do your civic duty. Bertie, who I love. Oh, Maureen Stapleton. Francisco Franco, a dick, the Spanish dictator. I was like, that's not cool either. He ran so, Spain. <laughs> I feel poor Frank. He was fighting the good fight, and I appreciate him now. It's so funny because Greg Kinnear is great, and he is underrated in that film. But for me, Parker Posey is just <laughs> – so I have her book that she's written, and I can't wait to read it. I think it's called And You're on a Plane or When You're on a Plane or something like that. And I think I saw it on your Instagram, actually. So, you know, we have very similar taste in books and people. But Parker Posey is just so funny in that film. And in your book, again, quoting it, that scene in the film where she says, you know what I always loved about the Rosenbergs? How old they looked when actually they were just <laughs> our age. And I love, love that you put in there. That is such a posh, upper class thing conversation to be had and that was just like all the posh upper class conversations that Nick and Nora Nick her husband had in their apartment the upper elite New Yorkers and I just I agree I think <laughs> of all the films it there is so much Nora in it and it's, it's just so funny so but going kind of back to favorite so the lines that we've just shared obviously I'll have what she's having is really high up there what are some other because you look at three of the films, so obviously you have lots of favorites, but what are some more lines and characters and scenes that when you were writing this book, you just had to include and also maybe some new lines and characters and scenes that you maybe decided you loved because you wrote the book? I know we just talked about Parker Posey, but on Instagram stories, my friend was watching You've Got Mail and she tagged me with the line, Patricia makes coffee nervous. That, I think I've talked about it on in interviews or my social media. That's my favorite line. <laughs> Patricia makes coffee nervous. It's a great line. I connect with that line and I don't know why. Possibly I make coffee nervous. Possibly <laughs> I'm closer to the Parker Posey character than I would like to admit. That's just a funny line and it nobody... Is. Could have written it except for Nora. And it's so simple as well. It's just a simple, like a zinger. And they talk the about one. that in the film as well, a zinger. What if I could transfer all of my zingers <laughs> to you? And then you could, you know, because Meg Ryan has such a hard time delivering what it is that she wants to deliver. And she meets Joe Fox in that cafe. And she is awful to him for the first time. And she's so proud of herself, but she's also so remorseful as well because that is just so not Kathleen Kelly. And it's just, oh, I just love it. it I'm, I'm pretty much just telling everybody all the great lines in the book. But going back to When Harry Met Sally, because as much as I love Sleepless in Seattle, as much as I love You Got Mail, I'd have to say that of the three of those, When Harry Met Sally is my favorite. And I watch When Harry Met Sally now, and I am 
heartbroken that both Bruno Kirby and Carrie Fisher have now left us for the great Hollywood in the sky. And Bruno Kirby, when they're playing Pictionary, Baby Fishmouth is just, <laughs> I, I cannot watch that scene without crying, laughing. My friend Lisa Persky in the movie, she plays Carrie and Meg's friend. She was there during that whole charade scene. And, you know, sitting on the couch with all the cast, the only thing she remembers is how magical Bruno Kirby was and how amazing he was at improv. Like, baby Fishmouth. And she said he was like just pure joy. And he's the friend also that you always want. Like he's always there. He's a ride or die. He's super supportive. And to me, Bruno's relationship uh, or Jess's relationship with Harry echoed Rob Reiner's real relationship with Billy Crystal. Rob Reiner was going through a very um, traumatic divorce from Penny Marshall. And he didn't know how to date women. He didn't know how to connect with women anymore. But he was depressed. So he was calling Billy, who was married to his college sweetheart, happily for years. He was calling Billy every night. And they would just have these hilarious conversations. They're both obsessed with death. And they would just have these morbid conversations Sort of like, also, um, Harry and Sally, it's their split-screen Casablanca viewing. Billy and Rob would do that in real life. Talk to each other all night and be watching the same movie. Oh, that's great. I love it. <laughs> I won't because there's not enough time in this podcast, but I could just <laughs> recite every line from that film. But they're laid side by side, and he's like, mm, Ingrid Bergman, she's low maintenance. <laughs> and she's like, Ingrid Bergman is low maintenance? She's like... Yeah. And then she says, what am I? He says, you're the worst kind. You think you're low maintenance, but you're actually high maintenance. And (laughs) I have to chime in here and say that not once, but probably dozens of times, my friends and family have called me Sally because when it comes to ordering, I am exactly the same way. (laughs) And I remember seeing that film with my dad for the first time. I must have been about 12 or 13. And I was just like, dad, I'm like that. And he was like, I know. (laughs) <laughs> and it's just it's just so funny. And I love those films where you can see a piece of you in a character. And what's really nice is that also yeah, it is really funny. And what's really nice is that I want to see the order now. Yeah, okay. Well we'll we'll go when I come to San Francisco, Aaron, you and I will go out and we will uh, we'll order and I'll show you. But those kind of moments when you can see yourself in a character connects us closer to the people who made those characters. And I think in a way that makes me feel like I'm connected to Nora on a certain level. And that kind of brings me on to my next question. So which character from these films closely aligns with your personality? Sally, without the ordering thing, a little bit of Parker Posey and You've Got Mail, a little bit of Rosie O'Donnell in Sleepless in Seattle. So I would say Sally, Rosie, and Parker that's a great combination. Maybe a little bit of Joe Fox. I have a, a right humor that he might have. And a whimsy. Yeah, I don't know. I love them all. So maybe I like me. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's not that no. I like the characters. Maybe the characters are more like me. <laughs> I know. I, no, I was like, I just love them all because even though a lot of her characters are flawed and um, neurotic, the common denominator for all of them is that they are decent people. Oh, that's they so true. They are 
warm and funny and decent people that you just you know want to be around and want to hang out with and then over time over repeat viewings you feel like they're your friends like I'm talking about Sally or Frank Navasky as if I know them so what about you what characters from her movies are you so obviously I've just divulged that I am Sally when it comes to ordering I feel like birdie and in a little bit of a way because she loves her friends so fiercely and she knows that there are lost causes out there but also the lost causes are the ones worth fighting for and I'm very much like that so I I look for the good in people and even if it's particularly difficult sometimes to find it I still am there it's a fantastic character yes what was that line and you've got mail you are daring to imagine that you could have a different life. Oh, I love that line so much. Uh, what an interesting, cool woman. Also so sad when she realizes, I think before anybody else, that the store is going to close because she walks by Fox Books and sees the author's photo yes. in there yes. who is doing an event there and not at the shop around the corner. A fabulous character. Norris probably saw herself in Birdie too. But I also like to think that I probably have a little bit of Harry as well because I am uh, I'm quite cynical in some instances and I <laughs> I love to make people laugh and I I would probably be described as disruptive at work. I get my work done, but I also just feel that <laughs> life is too short to just literally be sat at your desk for 8, 9, 10 hours a day and I love to just turn to somebody and I'll just do an imitation of someone or I'll just sing a little line from a song or something and you know I love again you find this out in your book and again for diehard fans like us the museum scene with Sally and Harry where he says I've decided for the rest of the day we are going to talk like this so that was improv <laughs> and it is Billy Crystal so I love Billy Crystal and I loved his memoir I literally laughed for 300 pages nonstop, and he is just so good at and there's also a film that I love that he's in called Forget Paris with Deborah Winger oh, I love that I, I love that film and he is just so good at Maybe you're going to laugh in the moment because it's particularly funny, but you're also going to be thinking about it in two days and just laughing again in your head about it. And I like to, I'm not saying I'm by any means comparable in hilarity to Billy Crystal, but his approach to making people laugh, even in the darkest moments is, I mean, when Sally is bawling her eyes out on the bed because she's going to be 40 in eight years and he <laughs> makes the joke about how Ch Charlie Chaplin was too old to pick up his kids, even though he could still have them in his seventies. It, it's just so, it's just so funny. So I, I like to think a little bit of a little bit of Harry as well. It's just a testament to Nora's unique ability to tell a great story. And I was just wondering, did you find or do you think that there's some winning formula that makes all these films so great? So you talked about Billy and um, finding the light in the darkness. What was so great about When Harry Met Sally, too, was that it wasn't afraid of being sad. And I feel like you watch so many romantic comedies and they're afraid to go there. And the movie is about all great romantic comedies, all the best ones, are about other things. And When Harry Met Sally is about growing up. It's about becoming an adult. 
and sort of the fear of aging. And I think people relate to that. The characters use humor to cope with their sadness. And I think that's how we all get through life. The characters are relatable and they're coming from a place that's real. And the movie is also funny as hell. And <laughs> Meg Ryan, oh my God, is she fantastic. She really is. Where did she come from? Like that was her first leading role and she nailed it. She and did. as you can see, like you can see at the beginning that she was a little sitcom-y. She was coming into the character. Billy was there right from the beginning. He understood Harry and had to play him. And I think once she got over whatever mental hurdles she had, because she was 26 at the time, Billy was 41. This was her first big oh, role. Wow, I didn't even know that age difference. And so when they were, that scene at the Met that you like, um, where he's like, let's talk in funny voices. That was Billy trying to connect with Meg, trying to make her comfortable and trying to create a chemistry that would translate onto screen. So Billy, in many ways, brought Meg Ryan into the greatest performance of her life. He brought her out. And that orgasm scene was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> there were so many great things about When Harry Met Sally that make it a classic and make it resonate. And then with, with Sleepless in Seattle, that was Nora's first big splashy film that she's ever directed. That was successful because she brought Dilia in and this, they made the script funny and broad and relatable, all of those things that they do. But they also brought Tom Hanks in. So that was, Little Seattle was Meg's second film with Tom Hanks. They had done Joe versus a Volcano. Oh, yes. It was a less successful romantic comedy. This was their first movie with Nora and their first successful romantic comedy together. They were Nora's muses. They understood how to say her lines and they were the best actors to say Nora's dialogue on the screen and they matched each other so well. They had this chemistry that you can't fake. And then they were able to recreate that again and you've got mail. And I think those films are so successful to out of three, also because of the Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan combo, which is so nostalgic and great. And also um, the inimitable Meg Ryan. There is nobody like her. She was Nora Ephron's alter ego in a way and the best and finest actress to say her lines on screen and play these characters. And they're all so different. Kathleen Kelly is different from Sally Albright. I would say... They're successful in large part because of Meg Ryan. I can't imagine anyone else other than Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal in When Harry Met Sally. I can't imagine anyone else than Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan in You've Got Mail and Sleepless in Seattle. It really does make those films so much more watchable because you trust the actors to do their job, which is to entertain us. And you trust those actors to reach us on a different level that we're going to remember forever. Listeners may not know this, but Tom Hanks turned down the role of Harry in When Harry Met Sally. Oh my God, I didn't know that. Yeah, he turned it down because he had just gone through a divorce from his first wife. He didn't want to go through that again. He didn't want to go through what Harry was going through. And Billy 
was best friends with Rob and Rob was going down the list of all these A-list actors. Uh, Richard Dreyfuss turned it down. Michael Keaton turned it down, I think to do Beetlejuice. Everybody had turned it down. And finally, Rob goes to Billy. Would you do it? Would you do it? And Billy's like, I've been waiting for you to ask. And Tom Hanks could not have done that as well as Billy. No way. Tom Hanks could not have brought that out of Meg Ryan. Like, that was a special movie. Tom could not have played Billy's role. So one of my favorite actors is Cary Grant. The, The famous Cary Grant line is, everyone wants to be Cary Grant, even I want to be him. And for me, I'm not comparing Tom Hanks and Cary Grant. They are two very different people. But what I mean by what I'm about to say is there's something about Tom Hanks that is pure and good. And in all the films that he's done, you look at him on screen and you say, it's Tom Hanks. And more often than not, you're going to love the film because it's Tom Hanks. With Billy Crystal, and Billy Crystal is in one of my favorite movies, which is The Princess Bride, and he is hilarious in it. (laughs) Billy Crystal has something else about him that Tom Hanks could never replicate and vice versa. And what's great is that Billy Crystal came into this role knowing that he wasn't the replacement of Tom Hanks. He was going to do it his way and it was going to be great because he did it his way. Yeah. Yeah. He was totally authentic. Yep. And he knew, even though he was insecure about his voice and his looks, because he's not like Tom Hanks. Billy is not the traditional lean man. But he knew he could bring something to it that other actors couldn't. So he had that belief in himself. He was going to do it, as you said, his way on his on his terms. Yeah. Which brings us to our final question. I would like for you to imagine that your book has been placed on a shelf. And I would love for you to talk through other authors and books that you would want on that shelf. So great literature, Frozen in Time, who would be on your shelf with your book? Jennifer Armstrong would be next to me. And for listeners, Jen and I are very close friends. And she was my mentor with my first book. I didn't know how to write a book. And I didn't know the process. So Jen had written a couple books, including Seinfeldia. And she worked with me every week. I took her nonfiction proposal writing class. So in order to write a nonfiction book, you have to write a book proposal to show publishers that it could sell. Like it has all sorts of annoying things in it, like about the author, how to market the book, a sample chapter. And I would write each section of the proposal, then send it to Jen. And she would be like, I think you could add this, or I think you could remove this. And by the end of six weeks, I had my book proposal for all have what she's having. And I sent it to two agents. I got an agent in two days and I sold the book in two weeks to Hachette. And I credit Jennifer Armstrong. I also am obsessed with Hilary Mantel. You're in the UK. Can you tell me when she's going to like write the third book in the trilogy? I, no problem whatsoever. <laughs> Any British author that you want to know when they're coming out with their book. And in fact, if you want me to mail you the copy when it comes out over here first before it comes to the US, I will be more than happy to do that. I could definitely see your book alongside Jennifer's for sure. They're definitely up there in the high caliber of television and film nonfiction. And Hilary Mantel is great as well. Those are some good books. If you could put a a Nora Ephron book up there, which one would be next to your book? Heartburn. Good choice. That book is so 
special because at the time when she published it, 1983, and it was a few years after her big acrimonious split from Carl Bernstein, who left her when she was seven months pregnant with their second child. And Nora, growing up, was told by her mother, Phoebe Efron, a screenwriter in Hollywood, everything is copy. Mine your life and write from your life and use your sad stories, turn them into funny stories so you can be the hero rather than the victim of the joke. So heartburn for her was a catharsis. It wasn't just like, oh, Carl Bernstein was a thinly veiled romantic left, definitely about their um, divorce. But it wasn't like a hatchet job against Carl. It was Nora turning herself into the hero rather than the victim of the joke because Nora and Carl were a power couple in media and literary society in New York. Everybody wanted to be them. He brought down a president. She was this fun, spunky, adorable, successful magazine writer. So when he left her, the literati kind of excited to see her fall a little and excited to see this successful woman fail in this aspect of her life. So this book was this sort of her way of not only getting revenge on Carl, but reclaiming her life. And she didn't want anyone to feel sorry for her. So she made a successful story out of her tragedy. And then it became a hot seller. And then Mike Nichols made a movie out of it with Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep. So like talk about revenge. This is a triumph. She turned her divorce into a triumphant comeback story. Yeah, she had the last laugh. Yes. I actually have one more question. The last podcast that I did with my friend Kate, we were talking about, so she wrote a book called The Friendship Cure. One of the things she puts in there as a chapter is, can men and women really be friends? And of course, that goes to When Harry Met Sally. And she talks about When Harry Met Sally in there and talks about her, her love for Nora. And one thing she said to me, which I found really interesting, and I wanted to ask you when I knew I was going to be talking to you, is she kind of wishes that when Harry Met Sally didn't end the way that it did and that it was really about what you do when you have a friend and you sleep with them and how you recover that friendship after something like that happens. And I just thought that was such an interesting point to make because, and I actually asked her, I said, do you think it would have been as successful and she quite quickly said well no people would have protested and it would have been outraged because people would be like where is my happy ending I'd love to know what your thoughts are on that what what do you think of that that was um it's funny because that was supposed to be the ending yes Rob Reiner initially wanted to make a movie about a man and a woman who help each other get over these traumatic breakups and then they sleep together the friendship is ruined and what they do about it afterwards. And Nora was all about it. She's like, oh, I have friendships like that. Everybody has a friendship like that. They wanted to make it a little Woody Allen-y too, like not a tip, a romantic comedy, but without that typical happy ending. Something more grounded in reality or what would actually happen between these characters. They focus grouped when Harry met Sally and people... Originally, it was supposed to end with Harry and Sally. Uh, their friendship was destroyed, and then they reconnect five years later, and then they walk off into Central Park. So Rob Reiner focus group this ending, 
and people hated it. They basically threw tomatoes at it. They wanted that happy ending. Also, Rob Reiner had just started his own studio. He needed a success. So part of him tacking on that happy ending, even the New Year's Eve ending with Billy Crystal running toward Meg Ryan, was that it, the movie would have been more successful with a happy ending than without. Yeah. So it was a business decision. It did make me think. I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> what, what if it did end that way? And best line is, I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with someone, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. And that is such a, oh, makes me so happy, that line. It's just like, I can't imagine it without that ending. So good, and you have to give the people what they want. Exactly. There's I so agree. much bad news and tragedy in the world that what's wrong with a happy ending anyway? Yeah. Like, those are the movies that survive because you know how it's going to end. Yeah. You want to get to that happy ending. That's what we want to see. Yeah, and people rely on those happy endings. Those films are just that comfort food, and they, they just make you so happy. And I'm just so thrilled that you have written a book <laughs> on this very topic that I so love and that we've talked about today. And I can definitely say to everyone listening, I will have what Aaron Carlson is having because it is such a, a fantastic book. And it is, I can honestly say without any hint of irony, Nora Ephron would be very proud of this book and that you've definitely done her proud. Oh my God, thank you so much. I, I worry more than I would care to admit about what she might have thought of the book. So that's great to hear. And I know that everyone else that has read it and will read it will feel exactly the same way that I do. So Erin, thank you so, so, so much for coming on today and chatting with me about one of my favorite literary idols, Nora Ephron, and the impact that her writing and her films had and how they'll continue to have an impact for many generations to come. So how can people get in touch with you to tell you how fabulous you are and how fabulous your book is? I guess you can find me on Instagram at Erin Lee, L-E-I-G-H, Carlson, or on Twitter at Erin L. Carlson. I love nothing more than talking about You've Got Mail and Nora. I want to know, and I'm sure everybody else wants to know, is there anything in the work that you're writing that we need to keep an eye on? Oh, I'm writing a book about Meryl Streep and her movies. Amazing. And it's called Queen Meryl, and it's coming out next year. Fingers crossed. I just turned it in, so now it's going to be edited. Congratulations. <laughs> everybody, read I'll Have What She's Having. Love it as much as, as I did, and it's just such a great book, and I display it very proudly on my bookshelf, so thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Shelf Life. I'd love for you to tell me what you thought of it, either on Twitter or Instagram, or by leaving a review on iTunes. Until next time, happy reading!